Well, thank you very much for your welcome, and it's, it's uh, good to see um, the Church of the Ascension. Long may this last, um, <laughs> what I yes. say. And um, thank you also for arranging the weather. I mean, it's... Um, it's the least uh, when I left London, it was raining heavily, heavy winds. I arrived in New York, it was raining heavily with heavy winds. So I thought, my goodness, what will Pittsburgh be like? And uh, of course, when I got here, it was sunny and warm. So well done. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, well, brothers and sisters, uh, what I thought I would do tonight is to address the question, is there a gospel for the 21st century uh, as a way of engaging with secular culture? Uh, I hope a more positive way, because uh, it is easy to criticize than to be constructive about what we should do uh, with the good news. And if you asked me, well, what is this gospel, I can give you no better answer than that of our Lord himself when he stood up in his hometown in the synagogue and said uh, what it was that he'd come to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he sent me to uh, proclaim, to bring the good news to the poor, uh, release to those who are captive, uh, sight to the blind, um, and the freeing of those who are oppressed. So, you know, that's uh, a good understanding of what this good news is all about. It's tomorrow's reading, by the way, in Trinity Chapel, because we are keeping St. Basil of Caesarea, who had a great deal to say about the work of the Spirit. But the question, of course, is, how does this good news relate to the world in which we live in? And what characterizes this world... And what are we to say as Bible-believing, gospel Christians to such a world? So there are just a few hints that I want to give you about the nature of the world and of people uh, who, who we come across um, in no way comprehensive. Uh, you will know a great deal of this yourselves uh, from your own experience. But the first thing to note about the world in which we live is the experience of alienation, of people separated uh, from the very ground of their being, uh, separated uh, from other people, and indeed um, strangers to themselves very often. And this sense of alienation has been noted by many people who are the makers of modernity. Um, so uh, Hegel, for instance, saw the human condition as one of uh, alienation, of enmity with the very ground of our existence, with nature and with our fellow human beings. And then Karl Marx. Do people remember Karl Marx? <laughs> I mean, with the demise of Marxism, you know, yes, vaguely. <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, Marx made many, many mistakes, and we are familiar with all of those. But one thing he did say was that uh, modern life was characterized by the alienation of the worker from what the worker produces. Uh, and this is true uh, in many ways because what the worker produces does not belong to him or to her. It belongs to somebody else. Um, I am in the process of writing yet another book. People may groan if they wish. Um, 
But you know, there is a, all authors will know this, there is a stage when the manuscript is yours. You can do anything you like with it. Then it goes to the publisher. And then it becomes theirs. You know, you are alienated from your own product. They tell you how to package it, present it, sell it, what price to sell it at, and, and all of those things. So uh, people are alienated not only uh, from the product of their work, but also from other workers, because the way in which we specialize these days in our work means that uh, we don't collaborate in producing things, which perhaps we ought to do more. And then, uh, of course, uh, Freud uh, and Jung, in different ways, pointed out uh, that there was an inner cleavage uh, in us, that uh, we are alienated from ourselves, that there is, um, there is something in us which makes us um, strangers to ourselves. Now... Uh, alienation of this kind is certainly characteristic of, of life, about how we live, how we work, how we relate to people. Neighborhoods are strangerhoods, certainly where, where I live. I don't know about Pittsburgh. Do you all know your neighbors very well? Some, yeah. Well, you well done for trying, but you know what I mean. The second um, aspect, um, if you like, of modern existence is anxiety. So um, a basic anxiety about existence itself. Why are we here? Uh, what is the point of being here? Um, does my being here mean anything? I mean, we'll return to that in a moment. So there's anxiety about existence itself. Um, but there's also guilt, you know, this constant sense that we have uh, acted wrongly, uh, we have done what is wrong to ourselves, to other people, and uh, we live with that guilt, um, as it were, um, which... Um, diminishes uh, the capacity to live fully as human persons. And, of course, there's anxiety about what's going on in the world. You know, the press, the media constantly feed this. Um, I was thinking about this um, only the other day, that um, as it happens, this came right out of the blue, as it happens, Iran, a country I work in and I know quite well, by proxy, by proxy, Iran is within 40 miles, it may be less than that, of Armageddon. You see, that made me very anxious. <laughs> um, you know, but there are all those sorts of things that suddenly strike you. You say, well, where is this world going? So there's alienation, there's anxiety, and then there is addiction, of course. That's another feature of modern life. That may be addiction to drugs, um, in the sense uh, that we understand that term. Um, every week, almost, the authorities discover in Britain that drugs that were thought safe and legitimate, therefore, are not safe at all. Um, and it's only when young people poison themselves, are killed, or become seriously ill, that we realize that these drugs are dangerous. Addiction to alcohol. 
I'm a fellow of my college in Oxford, and um, the fellow's bedroom uh, is just above the junior common room. That was a terrible mistake that was made (laughs) at some time. But, uh, I mean, what amazes me is the amount of alcohol that undergraduates consume. I mean, how, they, how do they ever do any work, you know? Um, well, maybe it's age, but um, there's drugs, there's alcohol. There are other kinds of addiction, of course. There's addiction to sex. I mean, pornography is a huge addiction among men, uh, in, certainly in Britain. I'm sure it's very similar here. Uh, there is addiction to possessions. People are addicted to holidays, You know, unless they have four or five holidays a year, they feel they haven't lived. Um, So um, these are the sorts of things that characterize uh, life uh, around us, which the gospel must address. So how does the gospel address um, such a situation? Um, The first part of what I say will have to do with with experience, if you like, of... uh, what happens when the gospel comes into someone's life or even a community's life. Um, And I want to begin with uh, the experience of being forgiven. You see, that is so important for modern man and modern woman to know that you can be forgiven. Uh, So often people are in a state of alienation, of rebellion, uh, of um, distance from God because they don't know about being forgiven. And I always say to people, um, however hard the circumstances, there is always a way back, you see. Um, And to be clear why there is always a way back... um, come to that in in a moment, Um, but the experience of being forgiven and also uh, the possibility of forgiving. You know, the two belong together, of course. Uh, If you know that you're forgiven, you will also have uh, the capacity to forgive. I mean, I find forgiving very difficult, to be quite honest. Um, and, uh, and I would not if it were not for the grace of God uh, in my own life. I don't know what, what your experience is like. But this um, being forgiven uh, results in friendship. Now, the basic aspect of friendship is friendship with God, of course. Uh, That friendship with God has come about because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Uh, That is why we can be forgiven. That is why we can be friends with God. And what is it that Jesus has done? Well, I can't exhaust the meaning of the cross (laughs) um, this this evening. And even if I stayed here a a year, I'm sure you wouldn't want that. But let me just say that uh, what is basic about the cross is, first of all, our inability 
to do anything to return to friendship with God because we are caught in a web of corporate sin. This is not uh, necessarily of our own making, but it is where we find ourselves, a web of corporate sin uh, in which we are caught. So we are unable, as it were, to get out of that. I think this is one of the important ways of understanding original sin in our, in our own context. But also, our own wills are unruly. You know, the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, as the prayer book has it. Uh, so it's not just that we are caught in, in a web of corporate sin of, of humanity as such, but our own wills are unruly and therefore unwilling uh, to be reconciled uh, to the very source of our being, the one who has made us. So what Jesus does for us uh, on the cross is to, uh, is to do what we are unable to do, first of all, and secondly, what we are unwilling to do. Uh, and in doing this, he turns away God's anger, both from our corporate rebellion and our personal unruliness. Yeah? Uh, I mean, I think this is a way of describing the substitutionary aspect of Christ's work, which I think is hugely important, but in a way that relates to where people are today. Um, so he, um, he turns away God's anger uh, and restores... Uh, friendship with God, the path to friendship with God. Uh, Bishop John Robinson, who is quite notorious for a number of reasons, uh, honest to God, not uh, being the least of them, but he, uh, in some of his writings, actually, uh, especially about the New Testament, he wrote very constructively. And uh, he wrote uh, a commentary on the letter to the Romans uh, called Wrestling with Romans, in which he says about Romans... God is only love. Those who respond to that experience it as love. Those who turn away from it experience it as wrath or wrath, I think you say here, don't you? I don't. You don't? No, no. I mean, well, yeah, well, well done for keeping up the standards. Yes. But it is that change of experiencing God as wrath to experiencing the same God as love, which is brought about by Christ's work on the cross. So um, forgiveness and then friendship. Um, and this friendship is not, of course, limited to friendship with God. It, that is basic. But then it results uh, also in uh, uh, the possibility of friendship with other people and uh, coming to terms also with ourselves. Um, th that proper love for ourselves, which is God's will for us, and that proper love for our neighbor, which is also God's will for us. Um, I think the church ought to talk a lot more about friendship than it does. Um, friendship with God, friendship with others, 
Um, one of the great pities, certainly in Britain, I don't know about here, is uh, the way in which same-sex friendships are cut short in our civilization by people pairing off early. So, you know, sometimes I see young people, girl and boy in the streets in Britain, and I think, you know, are they really old enough for this? And um, you may say, well, that's because you're getting older. But uh, that may be. I mean, policemen are getting younger, and um, <laughs> undergraduates are getting younger and younger. And say, well, has he really started school yet? And, uh, but he's at Oxford. Um, but the, what this does is it cuts short the experience of friendship with people of our own gender. Now, I'm known for not saying very polite things about the gay lobby and all of that. And in the light of what the Bible teaches, we've got to be very clear. Uh, And I don't think I will ever be accused of not being clear on that issue. However, you know, there is such a thing as proper same-sex friendship, uh, which the church ought to promote um, among its members and, and in society generally. Friendship reminds us of faithfulness. You know, that is a very important word in the Bible. God's faithfulness, of course, that's the basis of everything. Um, but also our faithfulness. I mean, the, one of the great things that uh, was rediscovered at the Reformation was this idea of faith as faithfulness, as trustfulness. Uh, faith also means in the Bible believing what God has revealed. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. But this fundamental meaning of of faith being trust, uh, faithfulness in that sense, uh, is very important. Um, And that also means faithfulness uh, in the society in which we live. Uh, I often say, I don't know what Jonathan thinks about this, but uh, the best of British business in the past was characterized by faithfulness by accountability, by responsibility, my word is my bond, a sense of calling, uh, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. Now, that was all ditched at the time of the Big Bang. You know, the Big Bang is not the one that is supposed to have happened 14 billion years ago or whatever. This is something that is supposed to have happened in the city of London in the 1980s. Uh, when uh, people were exhorted to ditch all these virtues that had characterized British business and may have characterized American business, uh, perhaps as well, uh, and uh, to substitute for it uh, acquisitiveness, I think is the word, Um, the slogan, greed is good. Well, you've heard that slogan. I, yes, I mean, I was on a radio program that's very famous in Britain called Any Questions with Boris Johnson, the, the mayor of London, sitting on my right. And at one point he turned to me, you know, Boris is a very provocative kind of person. He said to me, Bishop, he said on the program, he said, greed is good. So I, I said, why do you say this, Boris? You'll expect me to disagree, but at least tell me why you say it. And he said, it makes people rich, and they in turn make the nation rich. And I said, no, this is, this is not true at all. Because what greed is good, that sort of understanding has done, uh, 
is to have put us all into debt. It's made a few people rich. I actually have a close relative who did very well out of the big bang. A few people rich, but most people, and indeed their children, and perhaps their children's children, uh, have been put into debt that they will have to pay for the rest of their lives. So uh, greed is not good. And, um, of course, uh, faithfulness uh, not only at work, uh, but faithfulness in our families, you see. Um, How important that is, uh, particularly in the context of marriage. Um, I mean, the presenting problem in England uh, at the moment, and indeed in the Church of England, is the increasing breakdown in heterosexual discipline. You see. I mean, I know that happened here as well. Um, no standards, not even for the clergy. And if a bishop says anything about it, uh, that bishop is then regarded as completely beyond the pale. Of course, we know that the breakdown in heterosexual discipline then leads to accepting all sorts of other things. Because if there are no rules for you, why should there be rules for anyone else? Um, that's, that's the way it works. Um, faithfulness within the fellowship of the church. You see, um, what is the church? The church uh, is a fellowship of believers united around the testimony of the apostles. Read the first chapter of the first letter of John. It is the apostolic testimony that brings the church into being and keeps the church in being. The receiving of that testimony, the living of it, the passing on of it. And throughout the New Testament, nearly every part of it, what we believe and how we live are very closely interconnected. This attempt to separate core doctrine from Christian behavior has no basis whatsoever in the Bible, certainly nor indeed in the history of the church, by and large. Uh, it is, uh, it's a novelty, a uh, very convenient one at that. Um, so faithfulness in the family uh, is also important, uh, not only in the sense of um, commitment uh, to our spouse, uh, commitment to our children, Uh, the one flesh union that uh, Genesis talks about, uh, where this is not just contractual uh, for the bringing up of children. It's not even simply a commitment to another person, but it is what Augustine of Hippo uh, called a sacramental union, where the two are no longer two but one. Um, and I sometimes say, I mean, I'm not quite sure how evangelicals take this, but uh, the only thing called a sacrament in the New Testament is not the Supper of the Lord, it's not baptism, it is marriage. Jonathan, I think, knows where that is. It's Ephesians 5.32, isn't it? What is marriage a sacrament of? It is, the, it is a sacrament of the union between Christ and his church. You see. Um, (coughs) 
Of course, um, this does not mean that Christians are bound in a kind of slavery. I mean, I'm, I do not want to give that impression because the gospel is also about freedom. Uh, so if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed because you will be living according to the nature that God has always wanted you to have and which he has provided for you in that forming of Christ in you, which is the process of sanctification. So, of course, we are absolutely right to say that we are uh, accounted right with God because of what Jesus has done. That is absolutely right. Um, but uh, it is also true that uh, because of this friendship with God established by the cross of Jesus, Christ grows in us. And it is that growing of Christ in us which makes us uh, more truly who we are. And that is, that is what true Christian freedom is, is about. So there is this experience of being a Christian, which I think is important uh, to state in the way in which our world can understand. But uh, the gospel also recognizes that we are uh, innately spiritual, that we are, we are spiritual beings. We are not super monkeys, you know, with large you know, very large, perhaps brains that are too large uh, for our own good. We are not that. We are innately spiritual beings. And interestingly enough, the, the Bible's insight is now confirmed by all the research. Um, I've been involved in uh, two lots of research in this area, uh, one done in the University of Nottingham with people who have no allegiance uh, to any kind of organized religion. And their spiritual awareness, um, it is certainly inarticulate, uh, pathetically so in some ways, um, stunted, yes, but, but there. Uh, and the Alistair Hardy research program in Oxford itself uh, showed that working people in Britain, now you may think, you may not think this is remarkable, but in the British context, it is working men, they discovered, a large percentage of working men had spiritual experiences, which they were unable to share because of working men's culture, which doesn't encourage that sort of thing, of course. Um, so um, when we are talking about bringing the good news to bear uh, onto people's condition, we have to take account of this fact that there is this spiritual awareness in people, uh, there are spiritual aspirations, and that the gospel has to be brought to them in such a way that their authentic spiritual aspirations are fulfilled. Of course, there is a great deal that has to be set aside. Um, when people come to Christian faith. Um, but I have never met anyone, um, those who come to Christian faith from another faith tradition, for example, 
or even from the secular world, who thought that everything in their past life was completely a mistake and completely without value. Always, always there are things that they see now as leading to fulfillment in Christ. And this is, this is biblical. I mean, in the first chapter of Ephesians, uh, St. Paul tells us that in Christ, uh, according to God's eternal purposes, um, everything is brought to this kind of fulfillment. Um, but this um, spiritual aspect also, of course, uh, has to do with meaning. You know, you remember we said that um, one of the things about this sense of alienation was a loss of meaning, uh, personal sense of meaning in our world. And I was listening to a well-known psychiatrist on the radio the other day who was saying, well, I can prescribe Prozac to people who are depressed, but I cannot give them a meaning in life. Well, the gospel can, of course. You know, the gospel can give people meaning. Uh, that is to say, uh, you know, uh, you might say uh, the gospel provides people with a grammar for living. To tell them why they're here, uh, what God's purposes for them are, uh, and why they should have hope rather than despair hopelessness, um, without hope and without God in the world. You see, the most terrible description of this world, isn't it, in Ephesians 2? Um, but this uh, sense of meaning is also tied up um, with the question of direction, of guidance, uh, that people... Um, need not just an initial sense of significance, but they need to be guided in God's purposes for them as they grow, as they go through uh, Christian life and as they grow in discipleship. Now, uh, in this work of guidance, what, whatever you call it, um, I know you have programs um, here that are uh, going on in this sense. It is, of course, right to call upon secular disciplines, you know, whether that's in psychotherapy or other kinds of therapeutic disciplines. It is right for pastors, particularly, to learn from these disciplines, but not to become enslaved by them. You see, so pastoral counseling, for instance, can never just be an imitation of secular therapy. Because the gospel has to be brought to bear on people's direction in life, in their directions for living, in that guidance that Christian people need, of course. Um, but then also there is uh, the point about destiny. Spirit, if we are not super monkeys, what is our destiny? How do we know what is our destiny? And I think this is where the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead uh, is so important because, of course, when we celebrate Easter, we think of this as a vindication by God of 
Christ himself and of all that Christ has done. And that, that's, that's right, of course, and nothing must detract from that. But um, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is not just about Jesus. The resurrection is also about us. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we see what our own destiny is. Um, And not just our destiny, but that of the whole human race. This is God's purpose for humanity. And not even just humanity, but the universe. You see, it's it's not just about ourselves, but about the redemption of creation groaning in futility. And this is why Christian moral thinking cannot just be about how things are, because how things are uh, in a fallen world is not how God wants them to to be. But Christian moral thinking about the world also has to be resurrection moral thinking. This is Oliver O'Donovan's great book, Resurrection and Moral Order, in which he shows that it's not... Of course, Christians have to begin with how God has made things and what he intended them to be. But uh, they must also argue from the resurrection as to how God wants things to be and how they ought to be, therefore, because of the rising again of Jesus from the dead. Then thirdly... um, there is the intellectual side to the Christian faith, which is important in our world. And we mustn't apologize for this. Um, Sometimes Christians live, I'm sure not here in this church, as if there wasn't an intellectual side to the Christian faith and are almost ashamed to talk about it. Well, we shouldn't be. Um, we believe in a God who through uh, the operation of his divine word or divine reason has made the world. And the world is shot through with that reason. That is the meaning of logos, of course, uh, used in the New Testament in the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, but, but not only there. Uh, So the world is reasonable, uh, and um, not only is the world world reasonable, but it answers to the uh, structures of reason, even though they are fallen, of our own minds. I mean, this is the kind of thing that John Polkinghorne has uh, often um, pointed out, that it is not just the fact that there are laws of nature, Uh, which can be investigated and which are the basis of modern science. Uh, But it is the fact that the world can be observed by us and made sense of by us. Um, That's the amazing thing. Um, And it is a fact um, that um, it, it is this sense of an ordered and predictable universe with definite laws which has given rise to science. Uh, As a 
young person, I was great friends with a man called Sir Joseph Needham, who was then the master of Keyes College, Cambridge. Uh, it was very kind of them to even take notice of me at that time. Um, uh, Joseph Needham was perhaps the greatest expert in the 20th century on the civilizations and the science of China. Um, he wrote uh, volumes about these subjects. Um, not at all a Christian. Um, not hostile, but certainly not a Christian. And he had to ask himself the question, uh, given that uh, the science of China at the turn of the Middle Ages was far in advance of the West, why was it that Western science and technology took off and China didn't? I mean, China had provided paper and gunpowder and the stirrup that stirrups that turned horses into war machines. I mean, all sorts of wonderful things like that. Why did, why did science and technology take off in Western Europe and not in China? And Needham came to the conclusion, very reluctantly, very reluctantly, that it was Christianity. That it was Christianity that provided a view of the universe... Uh, predictable, ordered, with basic laws, uh, which made things like observation and verification and falsification so basic to scientific procedure possible. Um, now, um, more work has been done in this area in the 19th century, if you read the great scientists of the 19th century, I mean, I have great admiration for the kinds of uh, leaps that science and technology made in the 19th century. But they give the impression sometimes that science, modern science, appeared out of nowhere. Don't they? But it's not like that. Um, it's a new book by Thomas Hannum called God's Philosophers. Uh, of course, science was known as philosophy for a very long time. Um, but in this, he shows the debt that modern science owes to medieval Christian thinkers about the nature of the universe, uh, about the way in which the universe can be observed, about change in the universe, and so on. It's, it's worth reading just to see the connections and the continuity. What's the author's name? Hannum. Hannum. Thomas Hannum, God's Philosophers. Uh, he's, he's a Kent. Um, he, he's actually a, a philosopher by profession, not a, not a theologian. Um, so the, uh, the point is that uh, for science, as much as for any other subject, the tradition is very important, which makes scientific discourse uh, possible. And that tradition has a great deal to do with a biblical view uh, of the world. Now, uh, having said that, it is also true that the way in which science developed um, from the time of the Renaissance, from Enlightenment onwards, 
um, has a downside to it. And the downside is that whilst uh, science has been uh, very successful in classifying things, living things or inanimate things, in other words, in the what, science has been very good about saying what things are. That's fine. I mean, that was something uh, that belongs to Adam in creation. You remember, God asked Adam to name things. That's classification, isn't it? And uh, science has uh, also been very good at describing how things work. You see. Um, I was for many years the chair of the Ethics and Law Committee of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority in Britain. And the kind of the knowledge that we have now of the early embryo and how it works is quite amazing. I mean, what we do with the embryo is another matter, a very serious matter. But, but science has been very good at the what and the how, but not, but not with the why. Uh, you know, why is there anything at all? Uh, why am I here? Well, what are you here for? Um, why is the world? And that, of course, that why is also related um, to the what for question. Uh, what, you know, what is the purpose of being here? And um, this, uh, I mean, in Christian theology, this is described as the teleological point. This has consciously been set aside by science as not being proper to scientific investigation. Well, fine. Okay. But then where, you know, what is it proper to? Where is this question to be asked? The what for question. Um, the, um, so the, the intellectual, um, it is very important for us to be prepared to give an answer uh, in this situation. I mean, Anne was saying she's been watching some of my debates with Richard Dawkins, and if you press Dawkins, he will not deny the possibility of an intelligence. He won't deny it, because he can't. Um, in the end, I mean, if you deny it dogmatically, you are saying the world in the end is irrational and that human be the rationality of human beings in an irrational world is the supreme absurdity i mean i'd rather have christianity <laughs> yeah. you see that's that's the dilemma which which do you take um, but then uh, finally don't know where my time is um, you don't have clocks here. So. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> you, you know churches where there's a clock right opposite the pulpit, and you, you think it's, it's a sort of pointed statement. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, what does the gospel have um, to say in our world in the public square? Now, I have again and again, but always very reluctantly, been drawn into this. Uh, partly because the church, by and large, has withdrawn 
from that particular debate. I mean, individuals engage in it now and then, but Anyway, what does the gospel have to say in this area? And uh, there are three or four things that I just want to point out, and then I'll stop, and we can perhaps develop it in discussion. One of the things that is of overarching importance, I think, or underlying, whatever uh, metaphor you want to use, is that of uh, the inalienable (laughs) dignity of human beings. This is a phrase that is used by all the great international declarations. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights uses it. The European Convention uses it. I think your own Declaration of Independence uses it as well, doesn't it? But the question is, why should we say that human beings have a dignity that cannot be taken away from them? This cannot be proved by opinion polls or focus groups or surveys. Why should the utilitarian view not be correct? You know, some people, like Peter Singer, have taken the utilitarian view to its logical conclusion, which is that um, given the right conditions, even babies can be killed because it doesn't affect the sum total of human happiness or it may, in fact, increase the sum total of human happiness. You know, why should utilitarianism not be the right answer in treating, well, questions of abortion, for instance, or euthanasia? I mean, would the world be a happier place if somebody who's old and ill and wanting to die was killed? You know, why is human dignity inalienable? And the only answer to this, really, is the Christian answer that this is so because human beings are made in God's image. Um, We had, um, a few years ago, in Parliament, a bill going through called the Mental Capacity Bill. It was originally called the Mental Incapacity Bill, but uh, the government realized this was not a felicitous uh, title. So they changed the name of the bill, but not the content. And the The question was, uh, are there any circumstances in which a human being may lose the protections that are afforded to a human person in law? You see? Uh, And if so, what are those circumstances? Now, at that time, uh, I remember sitting around with uh, various people, including a very prominent philosopher who's been hugely influential on legislation in Britain in the last 40 years or so. And uh, she suddenly piped up. You probably know who it is now. Um, She piped up and she said, well, she said, you know, uh, human capacity in this sense can never be lost. So someone asked her, why do you say this, Baroness? you now know who it is. And, uh, and she said, well, she said it's because of this Judeo-Christian idea, isn't it, that we are made in God's image. So I said, well, I believe that. I'm very glad to hear that you, you know, you're saying this. But what it showed me, I mean, that debate was that there are certain subjects, even in the legislative process, where you have to invoke a transcendent principle. 
something that is beyond and outside of human society and what it might regard as its good. Now, a fortiori, this applies also, for instance, to the human person at the earliest stages of life. You know, when I was the chair of this committee, um, I used to say, of course it is true that uh, personhood emerges developmentally. You know, there are very important watersheds. So conception is one, implantation in the womb is another. I mean, have you ever read how the uh, conceptus, the early conceptus actually implants in the mother's womb? There is a dialogue between the conceptus and the mother which leads to the mother accepting a foreign object as its own part of its own bo- her own body. It's a most amazing process. Anyway, it's a, it's a watershed. The beginning of brain activity. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, God bless him, um, thought that uh, the fetus was ensouled at 40 days. That is exactly now we know when brain activity begins. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, Talk about profits. Um, So it is true that the human person emerges gradually. But we never know when there is not a human person. So I always used to say, I take the precautionary principle, you see. You don't need to make dogmatic assertions. All you need to say is, you know, we don't know, therefore we must act with precaution. To act, therefore, as if there is a human person at every stage of development. But if you do that, then, of course, the whole business of inalienable dignity, how you treat the embryo, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act prescribed that the human embryo has special status. It didn't say what the special status was, a typical sort of British fudge. Uh, but, but at least it recognized there was special status. You see. Over the years, uh, consequential legislation has f- focused on eroding that special status. Why? Assisted suicide, um, I've been writing about it, and shocking things are happening. Uh, The BBC produces one film after another, uh, arguing, promoting, campaigning for assisted suicide. Uh, Lord Joffe, who's a private member of the House of Lords, his bill keeps getting defeated on the floor and keeps coming back. You see? I mean, as a private, as a member of the House of Lords, if I'd introduced a private member's bill, well, people would have been polite and they would have said, give the bishop one reading. And then you'd never have heard of the bill again. Why does this bill keep coming back? You know, what's behind it? Uh, Again, um, the whole thing is fueled by ideas of radical autonomy. You know, just as the abortion debate... uh, works on the basis that a, that a woman alone and no one else uh, has control over her own body, 
So the assisted suicide thing works on the basis at the other end of the life cycle, if you like, which says that human beings are autonomous to put an end to their lives if they so wish, regardless of what their relatives might think or what harm it might do society, other vulnerable people who may suffer as a result of their actions or whatever. Um, so, um, if we are going to defend inalienable dignity of the human person, it has to be on the basis that the Bible sets out, which is that they're made in God's image. That is why it cannot be taken away from them. No utilitarian consequentialist arguments will do. Secondly, the whole idea of the equality of human beings. Um, why are human beings equal? Uh, on the face of it, they are not equal. They are differently mentally endowed. I mean, they are uh, diff differently physically endowed. We are going to have the Olympics in London soon. You know, we'll find out that some people are differently physically, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, they are rich and they're poor. They're tall, short, fat, thin, you know. I mean, they're not equal. On Why do we say human beings are equal? Um, some years ago, uh, two or three years ago, actually, I was uh, invited to come and address the newly constituted Equality Commission. Sounds very Orwellian, doesn't it? Equality Commission. <laughs> so... Uh, I said to my secretary, I said, you know, there must be a mistake. I'm not the sort of bishop the Equality Commission would. I mean, there are bishops who might be invited, but I'm not one of them. Uh, please check. So she checked and she said, no, no, bishop, it is you. So I said, okay, <laughs> I'll have to carry my cross. Um, so um, I went to address them and I actually a lovely, you know, uh, very well disposed people all beavering away at equality. Fine. But they didn't know why human beings are equal. See, why are human... By the way, when we talk about equality, we are talking about the equality of human persons, not of lifestyle or behavior. This is uh, quite often a category confusion uh, currently being made by the Prime Minister in Britain, but many others. Um, but why are human beings equal? And the only answer is it's the Bible's teaching of common origin. Common origin. Um, I was at one time the um, head of the Church Missionary Society, CMS, now called the Church Mission Society. And I used to read what CMS missionaries did, you know, in the course of history. And on one occasion, I remember being fascinated by CMS missionaries in Australia. Uh, they were commissioned to go from settler town to settler town to preach the gospel and make sure that these ex-convicts were, you know, behaving themselves. <laughs> but um, I discovered that, uh, well, two things. One, that they sometimes preached on this text taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, which in the old translation read, out of one blood hath he made all the nations of men. And the second thing I discovered was that quite often these missionaries would be run out of these settler towns. Why? 
because the settlers were unwilling to believe that they were of the same blood as the aboriginals. You see. So what is the basis for believing in human equality? It's the Bible's teaching of common origin. Uh, after the publication of The Origin of the Species, Charles Darwin was uh, very exercised by the possibility of the misinterpretation, as he saw it, of his work, uh, which could, he foresaw, take the form of uh, what I have called scientistic racism. That is to say, to use evolutionary ideas to suggest that human races are not just at different stages of development, but have different origins. And indeed, this kind of scientistic racism took root in this country in the South, and Darwin gave a lot of money, uh, uh, as it were, for work against the prevalence of this idea. But also then it later took root in the fascism in Europe of the early and mid-20th centuries. Um, science has since, of course, confirmed the Bible's instinct of common origin through the work of modern genetics, but Darwin was not to know that, of course. Uh, so um, if we are going to talk about equality, we must be clear what sort of equality we are talking about and what the basis for it is, and that, again, uh, relates to the good news of God uh, as revealed to us in Jesus Christ and in the Bible more generally. Thirdly, in terms of public policy, the question of liberty. Again, this is often referred to, uh, but not justified. You know, why are people free? And again, the basis for uh, the emergence of the idea of liberty is that people cannot be coerced into a response to the gospel. That people must be free to respond to the gospel of freedom. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why Wilberforce um, and his colleagues turned against slavery, that you cannot present the gospel to people and enslave them at the same time. Uh, the reformers wanted everyone to have access to God's word. That was another kind of freedom uh, that they were insisting on. Even the plowboy, said Tyndale, What's the equivalent to a plowboy in Pittsburgh? A what? A mill hunk. A mill hunk, right. Okay, then. <laughs> if, you, if you say so, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Even he, presumably they're all he's, are they? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, should be able to read the Bible. Should be free to read the Bible. Um, Bishop Tom Wright was the Anglican delegate at the Synod of Bishops of the Roman Catholic Church uh, on the Word of God, in which the bishops said in a resolution that every Catholic home should have a copy of the Bible uh, and the family should read the Bible together and so on. And Tom in his speech said that if the bishops had said this in 1517, There might not have been a reformation. Um, but, you know, the, the, the freedom 
for access to... I mean, these are basic evangelical principles uh, which have given rise to the idea of liberty. And let us not divorce this from uh, this idea from its, from its origins. Uh, Pope Benedict, actually, uh, talking about the Roman Catholic Church, was asked by a hostile journalist. He, the, the journalist said, for centuries the Roman Catholic Church has been saying, error has no rights. Error has no rights. Why have you changed your position and why are you now arguing for religious freedom? And Benedict said, in this, I mean, these are his words. He said, in this we've gone to, back to the earliest form of the tradition, that is to say, the teaching and practice of Jesus himself. Well, I thought that for a pope, that was a pretty good answer. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, hospitality. Um, in Britain, anyway, um, Britain began uh, to become a diverse society, ethnically, in terms of other faiths and so forth, at precisely the time that it was losing the power of Christian discourse in the public sphere. Um, So instead of uh, welcoming this new diversity on the basis of Christian hospitality of Christian engagement, of Christian service, they invented multiculturalism, you see. It was a necessity. And multiculturalism was based on the idea, well, we don't know who we are, or at least we've forgotten who we are. We certainly don't know who you are. So on the basis of, I mean, tolerance in England particularly, I use England advisedly, is a very dangerous word because it means leaving people alone to their own devices. And this is actually what happened. Communities, groups were left on their own. You know, you get on with your life, we'll get on with ours. And the result was segregated communities, no common view of citizenship, no lingua franca. uh, And this was used, at least for some communities and groups, by extremists to infiltrate and to recruit. And we all know what the result of that has been. Um, Now, um, some people say, a prominent British politician has written a book about this, saying, yes, of course, we have derived these values from the Christian faith. I mean, even Dawkins admits this, that it's a, a Christian view of the universe that gave rise to modern science, for instance. But this minister says... Having received these values from the Christian faith, it's like climbing a ladder. We've climbed up the ladder now. We don't need it. We can kick it away. Well, personally, in my own experience, I find kicking away ladders a very dangerous procedure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because as soon as you think you've done away with it, you you need it again. Um, And and the question is... um, whether these values that he celebrates have an independent existence or are we living in an afterglow? Are we living in a sort of vestigial period? Uh, The the cat's disappeared and the smile on the face of the cat will also soon disappear. You see, that's the question. Um, 
then sometimes poli other politicians say, but all religions lead to the same values. You know? There is soon to be a celebration of worship in Westminster Abbey with the Dalai Lama. Well, um, do all religions lead to the same values? I don't think so. Um, Islamist, <clears throat> uh, Islamist ideology will always promote social solidarity over personal freedom. No question about that. I mean, a, a Muslim friend of mine who isn't an extremist by any means said to me once, he said, Bishop, we never know when you're fasting. So I said, well, Jesus said, you know, when you're fasting, you, people shouldn't know. He said, but even before I'd finished, he said, but in Islam, fasting is a social act. And anyone who's been in a Muslim country in Ramadan will jolly well know what that means. If you're ill or young, too young or very old or whatever, doesn't matter. Fasting is a social act. So Islam, Islamist ideology is not going to produce any sense of personal freedom in the way that Christianity has. Uh, what about the dignity of the self, dignity of the human person? Well, Buddhism, you know, the Western people flirt with Buddhism all the time, hence the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has said recently, there is no such thing as God or the self. These are crutches that human beings need to dispense with if nirvana, enlightenment is ever going to be possible for them. Uh, I wonder whether he's going to say similar things in Westminster Abbey. But, <laughs> but you know, Buddhism is a, uh, is a refined and um, cultivated worldview. It's certainly that. But it isn't going to lead to any high view of the human person because at its heart, Buddhism denies that there is such a thing as a human person and locates one of the sources of human suffering in thinking that there is such a thing as a human person. Hinduism is again a very refined and um, very ancient uh, faith and worldview, but uh, Hinduism has produced the caste system, not accidentally, but the caste system is part of the worldview of Hinduism. Okay? Well, it's not going to produce a view of the equality of human persons, is it? So all religions do not produce the same values. Aggressive secularism works in two ways. It either smuggles in Christian ideas of dignity, liberty, equality, without, without being able to give an account of them. Yeah? Or it produces radical ideas of autonomy... Uh, in the case of the treatment of the early embryo or fetus, for instance, or in things like assisted suicide, which are radically unchristian, it is um, over individualistic that, in other words, that it seeks human happiness in individualistic rather than social terms. It has a tendency to capitulate to culture. Have you heard that one before somewhere? Um, uh, aggressive secularism can be found uh, right inside some of our denominations. Um, capitulate to culture, it is in thrall to scientific and technological development. 
and tends to see them as good in themselves without having a vantage point that can challenge them. Now, against aggressive secularism, you also have what I've called procedural secularism, which is, you know, everybody has a place around the table, which looks very seductive. Um, But the fact of the matter is that there is no tabula rasa. There is no kind of uh, blank sheet of paper. Because what procedural secularism does is, having invited you to the table, it then presents you with a secular program, which is the basis for everything that is done. Now, I've tried to show... uh, what sort of world in which we live and how the gospel bears onto these very important matters that uh, we face in our world today. Of course, as churches, as individuals, as families, we have to make sure that the gospel does is brought to bear on these issues. I mean, the failure of the church and of Christians generally is that is not that the resources don't exist, but that they've been unable or unwilling to bring them to bear on the modern missionary situation. We are either stuck in pietism, or we are stuck in another age, perhaps a simpler age, but nevertheless another age, uh, or we've given up. We give up too quickly with our own children, with our neighborhood, uh, with society generally. But there is good news for the 21st century, just as there has been for every other century, and it is our responsibility under God to bring that good news to bear uh, on those around us. So thank you, Jonathan. I'm sorry I've gone on so long. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, we've got 20, well, 18 minutes for some <laughs> questions. All right, Alan, your hand was up first. Given your background, I'm especially interested in the gospel's response to Islam. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an easy, short question. The, <laughs> the, the gospel response to Islam. Okay. Well, this is the title of another lecture, I'm afraid, but, um, and I, I deliberately steered clear of it. Um, I think you have to distinguish between Islam as a faith that people follow and Islamism as an ideology. Islamism as an ideology is a social, political, and economic ideology that is comprehensive in that sense, it can only be compared to something like Marxism. And so Christians have to deal with that ideology in in the way in which we would deal with any other ideology. The faith that people follow, well, of course, we must respect uh, people's uh, faith. My own uh, view with Muslims is that you, as with anyone else, you have to begin with what they know to what they don't know. Uh, 
the way in which Jesus is mentioned in the Quran or in the traditions of Islam is quite different from the Jesus of the Gospels. Nevertheless, um, we can find ways of approaching Muslims with what they know about Jesus already. Um, And um, there are many things said about Jesus in the Quran. For example, he's called, he's called the Messiah 11 times in the Quran. No one else is called the Messiah in the Quran. And we can at least ask, what, what does that mean? What does the word Messiah mean? He's called the Messiah, but it's never descri- you know, described, it's never explained what, what the word means. One understanding of the word Messiah, uh, very widespread in the Muslim world, is that it means one who heals. This has to do with the way in which an Arabic verb works. And a lot of the experience of Muslims of Jesus, if they have any, is that of healing. Um, I was telling the story this afternoon at Trinity about uh, a Christian hospital in Isfahan in Iran that was confiscated like everything else, uh, all other church property at the time of the Islamic Revolution. This hospital was called Bimaristan Isa Masih. Bimaristan means hospital. Uh, Isa Masih, obviously, Jesus Christ. Um, And then I noticed after the revolution that they changed the name to Bimaristan Imam Khomeini. Okay. Few years later, I was in Isfahan again, and I was passing the hospital because you have to go past it to get to the church. I saw the name had been changed back to Bimaristan Isa Masih. So I, when I got to the church, I, I said to the priest, I said, you know, are my eyes deceiving me, or has this the name of the hospital been changed back? And he said, yes, it's been changed back, because when they changed it to Bimaristan Imam Khomeini, people stopped coming. <laughs> because, you see, whatever you may think about Imam Khomeini, nobody thinks he's a healer. <laughs> yeah, you see, that's, so that's the kind of... Um, you know, that, uh, in, in you can begin with people's experience, such as it is. It's, you know, it's not in any way complete, but uh, it is real. Um, I find generally there are two kinds of Muslims who are open to the gospel being shared with them. One uh, is the kind who is attracted to the person of Jesus and to his teaching. Um, so they uh, would be very interested, uh, for example, if you gave them a copy of the Sermon on the Mount, because that is what attracts them. Um, <clears throat> and that's, you know, that's also a valuable way of, of reaching Muslims. The other kind uh, are those who have had some kind of experience through vision or dream or healing of Jesus. And they then become open to, uh, to the gospel being shared with them. Sometimes it may not be themselves, but 
a friend or a relation who's had such an experience. That also makes them more open. Um, and you have to be wise in seeing what kind of person it is. Those who've had a spiritual experience of Jesus have very few doctrinal questions. You know, they're willing to accept the package of Christian faith. Those who are attracted to the, to the sort of ethical dimension of Jesus, if you like, often have many questions about what Christians believe about the Trinity or Son of God and all sorts of things like that. And it's, um, it's a very laborious task, and it takes many years working with such people. So it, it does depend. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I know something about it. Um, some years ago, uh, not with the present Anglican bishop in Iran, uh, the previous one, um, a man from a middle-sized industrial town in Iran turned up on his doorstep saying that he'd had a vision of Jesus uh, and he'd traveled all the way to, to the bishop uh, to ask, what should I do about it? You know, what should I do about this? What, what should I make of this? The result of all of that is that there is now a middle-sized church in that city where he lives where there had not been a church before, a house church. Um, this kind of thing is happening everywhere in Iran. Uh, when uh, President Ahmadinejad beca first became the president... He made two promises, or some might say threats. You know what one of them was? What was the first one? Destroy the nation of Israel. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Annihilation of Israel. The second was to destroy all house churches. And since that time, they've been relentless in arresting house church leaders, in closing down house churches, there are at least two house church leaders at the moment who are under sentence of death. Uh, pray for them, their families. Uh, the young women, Mariam and Margie, you remember them? Two young house church leaders, Mariam and Margie, were arrested. Shia law prescribes death for apostasy for males, but confinement to prison until they recant for women. So each time they were brought to court, and they were only asked one question, which was, are you willing to renounce your Christian faith? And each time they gave the same answer, 27 and 28 they were at that time, they gave the same answer, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We cannot renounce this faith. They were immediately taken back to prison and and so on, until after a great deal of international pressure, they were released. At about the same time, the Western press was making a great deal of this Iranian-American journalist who had been arrested, and she was released, but they hardly ever mentioned these two young women. Um, um, there are a number of things going on, you see, which 
The first is there is a large, very large number of Iranian people who have had a vision of Jesus. I mean, this is a, this is a fact. Um, some of them want to make something of it, some of them don't. But those who do usually end up in a house church. Um, the house churches are not, um, what's the word, um, hermetically sealed off from churches like the Anglican Church or the Assemblies of God or whatever, or even the, the ethnic churches like the Armenians and the Chaldeans and the Assyrians. Because sometimes, whether for the sake of sacrament or wider fellowship or whatever, or teaching, they come to these institutional churches. And that is what causes trouble. That is when you hear about it. That is when people are arrested or, you know, whatever. Because that is one thing the authorities do not want. Uh, we've recently had six uh, Anglicans released from prison. And they were arrested precisely for this reason. They were accused of consorting with house church members. Well, I mean, how can you, you know, not, as it were. Um, they have now been released uh, on condition that the bishop guarantees their good behavior. Now, I mean, this is a recipe for the bishop being arrested. You know, I mean, yeah, risky business in some places being a bishop. Um, how is he going to guarantee that good behavior? And when will the authorities say, we release them, you know, on, that, on this guarantee, you haven't done what we asked you to do, now you're up for it. Um, but the authorities are very concerned about its growth. That itself shows that this is a significant movement. Um, Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of guesses about how big this is. But, the, but let's say this. The house church movement is already several times the size of the official visible church in Iran. What was the book? Called Good Without God. Good Without God. Yeah. Well, of course, A.C. Grayling has published a Bible without God. You, you know that, a secular Bible. It's called the Good Book. Um, yeah. I mean, the absurdities that people are prepared to go to, you know. I mean, why have a Bible without God, you know? Um, you see, the... 
I mean, Dawkins says this. Um, he was saying in another debate that I was, uh, not the one you were looking at, Anne, but another debate I had with him, he was saying, uh, why can't we just be civilized people together? Why do we need religion? And I said to him, it is religion, or at least the Christian faith or the Bible, that has made us civilized. You see, he can't see... I mean, Darwin couldn't see this. You know, Darwin had a long correspondence with his wife, Emma, who was a Christian. Uh, and I think Emma wrote letters to him because she felt she could explain her position better uh, in that way. Uh, and Emma was constantly asking Darwin what would be the results for morality of his work. And he was saying again and again, it, it doesn't affect morality at all. It will remain exactly the same because he could not imagine himself outside Victorian morality. The fact that it, so much of what Victorians took for granted was of Christian origin didn't strike him. And in, in many ways, he continued to behave like a Christian Victorian, uh, even to the extent of supporting his local church. I was chosen to be the preacher at the bicentennial of uh, Darwin's uh, birth. And, uh, yeah, very interesting, actually, because... <laughs> Well, it was very interesting because a lot of the Darwin family who's still around are Christians. Uh, the rest came. I mean, those who are not. All the scientific establishment turned up. So what do you say? Um, uh, I mean, I began with uh, letters between Charles and Emma. I mean, as, you know, as a point of connection. Um, so I think a lot of this has to do with the inability to imagine yourself out of a framework which actually Christianity has produced. Um, and one of the things you have to do is to show them what would happen if you did put yourself outside of that framework. And people are then very shocked when they're confronted with this. Um, the afterglow is disappearing. I mean, um, we had uh, an article in a British medical journal three months ago, four months ago, on the title of it was The Ethics of Post-Birth Abortion. Yeah? What is post-birth abortion? Well, of course, it is. <laughs> that's right. Um, Exactly, it's infanticide. And the church, the early church, always related abortion and infanticide as, as you know, crimes that were sins that were related to one another. Um, the uh, idea of not using human beings as means to our own ends, it's a Christian idea, of course, is disappearing. I mean, people are, of course, doing this with life partners. They're simply using other people as means to their own uh, satisfaction of one kind or another. This is very far from the one flesh union that uh, Genesis talks about. But it is also happening, uh, for instance, in the, uh, in the way in which um, uh, the human embryo is being used uh, as instrumental for something else. 
not as having that dignity of being an end in itself. So, uh, you know, I say to um, anti-abortion campaigners in Britain, that's fine what you do, but the real problem is what is happening to the embryo. I mean, human embryos are now being produced for research. Uh, hybrid embryos are being produced by mixing animal and human sperm. Uh, you know, <laughs> what is a hybrid embryo? Is it animal or is it human? If it's animal, why not use an animal fetus? Uh, if it's human, why doesn't it have the protection that a human embryo has? So the afterglow is disappearing. I mean, you know, gradually. Uh, and we are, I mean, I, I take Alistair McIntyre's view entirely that we are slipping into a new barbarism. Uh, maybe an old barbarism. Um, and um, the question then is what the church does about it. The, the Church of England, as Jonathan will know, has been very good at the salt metaphor, you know, acting invisibly with the grain of society, hatching, matching, dispatching, you know, uh, all that's been very good, but salt is invisible. Um, it uh, provides nutrition and taste and preserves without being visible. But the question that McIntyre has raised is whether we need to shift from the salt metaphor to the light metaphor. You know, light is by definition visible. I mean, as Jesus said, you don't light a candle and hide it under a bushel. You put it on a lampstand where it can give light to the house. And the question is whether our churches should consciously model themselves as moral and spiritual communities that attract people by the way in which they live out the gospel. You know, Bishop Leslie Newbegin used to say that the congregation is the best hermeneutic of the gospel. Um, well, uh, if we have reached this stage where the, even the afterglow is disappearing, then we have to ask what kind of church should we be. But no doubt you, you do ask yourselves that.